Traveling the Vortex. Side trip. And welcome back to another side trip. My name is Sean from Traveling the Vortex. This is Star Trek 206. I'll be taking a look at Star Trek The Next Generation in their sixth season uh, due to popular demand. I thank you guys for being interested in these, and uh, we'll dive right in. Uh, season six pretty much picks up in many ways right where season five leaves off, uh, not only because of the conclusion of the uh, two-part finale, um, Time Zero, which in my humble opinion wasn't very good, but uh, <laughs> that's another matter. Um, but um, as with Season 5, there were a number of big highs for the series, uh, some absolutely standout phenomenal episodes, and there were a couple of not-so-much misses. Um, you know, I think all, all series kind of go through that, uh, you know, ups and downs of uh, quality. And overall, even the bad episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation are, are still fairly entertaining and worth watching. Um, and fortunately, there were not nearly as many of them as the series went on. But there were a couple of dogs. Um, I want to focus mainly on the good ones and kind of, uh, as with previous episodes, lay out my, my top five. Um, and uh, these are kind of in no certain order. Well, there's a little bit of an order to them. Um, we're going to start things off with the uh, the earliest of the standouts for the season, Episode 7. Or, excuse me, Episode 4, uh, Relics. Now, if you've not seen uh, any of these, obviously, spoilers uh, going forward. Uh, Relics was quite the phenomenal episode, um, written by Ron Moore, who, as we've discussed before, is, uh, you know, one of the cornerstones of what made Star Trek The Next Generation great. It features the Enterprise tackling a Dyson Sphere, uh, this discovery of this absolutely immense construction that uh, is an entire sphere that was constructed around a star so that you could have livable surface everywhere on the inside of the sphere. But crashed on the surface of this Dyson Sphere, on the outside of the, uh, the sphere, is the USS Janolan. And they discover that the transporter is still active and trapped in the transporter buffer where he's been for the last, uh, you know, 70-some-odd years is one Montgomery Scott. Now, this is a, a, a bit of, you know, obviously it's stunt casting. Hey, we brought back James Doohan to play Scotty. Okay, you've got my attention, uh, you know, just right off the bat. And it does several things really well. First of all, we get one last bit of brilliance from Scotty. Uh, the idea of, you know, beaming himself into the transporter and then hooking it into a continual loop so that it just cycled his pattern through the buffer. While, yes, it's all technobabble, but it's Star Trek technobabble at its finest. And it's a really cool idea um, that I would think some Starfleet engineer somewhere is developing for potential suspended animation, that maybe this is something that they would look into to, you know, further Starfleet technology and, uh, you know, exploration ships and, and instead of doing a generational ship, possibly pinning people into pattern buffers. Now, as Scotty himself points out, 
it was only 50% brilliant because his comrade didn't make it. His pattern degraded too far. But in and of itself, it's a brilliant idea, and it works really well. And, of course, Scotty would come up with it, the original transporter chief. Um, the other thing that this does well is there's a wonderful scene where Scotty is reminiscing and, uh, and uh, binge drinking uh, over everything that he's lost. And he winds up on the holodeck on a fairly faithful recreation of the original Enterprise bridge. Uh, as he says, no bloody A, B, C, or D. And to see Scotty in that environment is one that just really tugs at the heartstrings. And it's a very moving scene. And it's brilliantly shot and lit. And it looks very much like the Bridge of the Enterprise. They, they, they did their homework and got it right. Although to hear James Dewan talk at the color of the carpet was wrong. Um, which was news to me because I always accepted that those were deck plates and not carpeting. So, you know, what do I know? Um, but it's a brilliant tale. And we've had, obviously, um, a number of um, crew from various eras wind up in the next-gen time frame, uh, whether through old age, as, uh, you know, McCoy in, uh, in Counter Farpoint, or... Um, through the miracles <clears throat> of the Nexus with Kirk uh, in Generations. Uh, and now here's, you know, Scotty um, through a transporter accident. And I'm sure there are going to be, well, and Spock with, you know, simple age. Um, I'm sure there are others out there. You could go into, you know, Kelsey Grammer's guest appearance as a 80-year-old captain and, and whatnot. And so, in, in many ways, it's not necessarily treading any new ground because we've been here before, uh, especially with the ones who suddenly find themselves there. Uh, but this does a very nice job of giving Scotty some emotional depth and some closure in many ways. He also has a couple of wonderful scenes with Jordy as the current engineer. Now, a couple things that this episode doesn't do terribly well is I've always accepted on blind faith that Scott is an engineering genius, and I think his track record's pretty solid. And the discussion he has with Jordy about, well, how long will it actually take you to do it? You know, it was a fun joke in Star Trek Three when Kirk asked, have you always multiplied your repair factors by four? But to find out that Scotty does it for real, it felt kind of like a cheap shot. It, it took some of the some of the fun out of the joke and uh, made it a little more biting. But uh, it's a nitpick. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to let it go. Uh, next up on the list is Rascals. Now, this comes uh, just a little bit later uh, in the season, Episode 7. And in this one, another transporter mishap uh, finds Picard, Guinan, Roe, and Keiko... Uh, well, they're all 12-year-old children. And for me, this one, I, I know not everybody is a fan of this one. For me, this one is, is twofold. It, it kind of exhibits an opportunity for Star Trek to let its hair down, in a way, and, and just have some fun. It's a uh, sweet little story, and it offers up a chance, especially, you know, from the standpoint of here's Picard, who is now trapped in this 12-year-old body with all of the, uh, um, you know, Picard-isms, things that he is so stern and, and 
logical about it. And all of a sudden, he's going to be forced to relive this stuff uh, and, and how difficult that must be. But it also has a, a, a wonderful, I mean, Guinan with hundreds of years of, of wisdom distilled down to a mischievous 12-year-old. And it kind of, in many ways, just perfectly captures the characters. Um, I think it's just a it's just a blast. It's a fun episode to watch. Um, it's a little lightweight, sure, but um, you know, it, with uh, I, I don't I don't think you want a heavy story. Um, not for a, a topic such as this. Also on the list, I'm going to cheat just a little bit, and I've done this before. I'm going to lump a two-parter together. Chain of Command, Part 1 and 2. And in this one, Picard Worf and Dr. Crusher are sent off on a secret mission to destroy a Cardassian weapons factory, uh, which leaves the Enterprise in the hands of uh, Captain Jellicoe. And uh, Jellicoe's, uh, first of all, wonderfully played by Ronnie Cox. Um, but he's also such a different um, persona for the crew to get used to. And you kind of realize how much you rely on Picard's steady hand in the grand scheme of things. How much he really contributes to the day-to-day running of the ship. The decisions that you wouldn't necessarily think twice about in his hands suddenly become oh my god, do we mutiny or not, in the hand of Jellicoe's. Uh, and it's it's a very interesting look at uh, the command structure and simply differences. It's not that Jellicoe's a bad guy. He isn't. He just has a different way of doing things. And it, um, you know, makes you realize that, you know, if and when, at this point, you know, if Riker ever did accept a promotion to the big chair but on a different ship, how differently would he run it? And would he model it after Picard or would he... You know, would it be a little looser, a little more rikery? So there's a lot of that going on, which is great. The um, mission does not go well, the secret mission that Picard and company go on, and Picard winds up being captured, which is the bulk of Chain of Command Part 2. Um, Picard is an unwilling guest of the Cardassian High Command and is tortured at the hands of David Warner. Now, you put David Warner in anything, and you have my attention, because the man is not only a phenomenal actor, but he's a you know sci-fi legend, um, going all the way back to things like Time After Time, and Tron, and uh, Titanic, and uh, well, he's appeared in Doctor Who, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. I love this man. But here he uh, gets to do all of the things that David Warner does so well. He is slimy and nasty and yet very, very reserved, very complimentary in his approach, very almost reasonable in his ways of attacking Picard and making Picard question things. And the very famous, there are four lights. All of that comes from this episode, and it's so good. Uh, Patrick Stewart is um, just putting on a brava performance, and um, it could have very easily sunk into, I don't want to go so far as to say pantomime, but it could have been less 
than it was. It could have very much become uh, an episode that um, was a little too over the top or maybe just didn't work for whatever reason. But instead you find that um, great care is taken and you wind up with one of the more classic episodes of The Next Generation, of the entire series. You know, this one stacks up there with it. It does briefly call into question how many times, you know, these characters can have these absolutely life-shattering things happen to them, and yet they're back at work the next day. I mean, I kind of think that in many ways uh, Picard's violation into Locutus at the end of season, or at the uh, end of season three, beginning of season four, that's pretty much a career ender, I would think, in, in a lot of ways. But not in Starfleet. No, in Starfleet you get a week off, and then you're back out there. So... But this is just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal episode, and it may even be the best one of the season. Also on my list of top five is Ship in a Bottle. Now, this is another one that I think fandom is a little split on. I think people appreciate it, but I don't know that anybody would list it as, as maybe as highly as I do. It is a sequel to Elementary Dear Data in which Professor Moriarty uh, from the Sherlock Holmes simulation reappears and seizes control of the Enterprise. Once again, we're playing with elements of time and perception and how long Moriarty has been waiting for his promised freedom versus how long on the ship things have actually progressed and has anybody been working on this or did we just assume that, you know, oh yeah, that'll be taken care of. Uh, it also features Barkley. So uh, uh, Dwight Schultz has a fairly prominent role in this one, although it's not a Barkley episode. That would be reserved for Realm of Fear early in the season. Uh, and it gives Moriarty a chance to not only be Moriarty, but to really kind of showcase the intellect that this character was capable of outside of the confines of the Holmes program. It also shows him as a complete person. He has found, he's found love. He's found somebody that he's interested in. Uh, and it's as important to him that she is freed from this prison. And that's why he's out there. That's why he's fighting for this is, uh, you know, for her. So there's a lot to like. Um, it doesn't hurt that uh, his love interest is Stephanie Beecham, who uh, um, I will forever remember from Sequest, DSV, but uh, uh, another wonderful actress. And uh, again, it just gives a, a, another bit of shading to the whole holodeck controversy, um, giving us multiple things that work and is this technology worth it? And kind of raising those kinds of questions, even if they don't delve into them too deeply within the confines of the episode, I think it's one of those things that raises a lot of questions about how every, every holodeck episode raises questions about the holodeck. It is a great playground to set an episode in if you do it right. And uh, this is certainly one of the ones in my mind that does it right and you know, brings up a lot of questions. Now, my final pick for top five, and again, this is one that I don't think anybody would argue with, is Tapestry. Um, an old injury from his Starfleet Academy days, 
um, basically implodes Picard's heart. His his uh, automatic heart, his pacemaker fails, and Picard dies. And who's waiting for him in the afterlife but Q? Now, right off the bat, this is, you know, oh, yeah, and you get excited because it's a Q episode. Um, but once again, Patrick Stewart really demonstrates his grasp on the character of Picard and what he goes through and what he would go through and how he would handle it. And it's very much an episode that deals with de uh, regret and things that we thought we did incorrectly in the past. And if you were suddenly given a chance to have a redo, it's a wonderful life. And he grasps that with both hands and tackles things that if I had it to do over, I would. Only to find that it's, you know, as the name implies, tapestry, which has the distinction of being the only episode other than Encounter at Farpoint, that does not feature Q in the title of the episode, in which Q is actually, well, Encounter at Farpoint and all good things. So it's one of three. Um, but as Q points out, the tapestry of your life is made up of all of these threads. And if you start pulling at threads, everything unravels and you are no longer the man you are. You become something else. And Picard learns that firsthand. Um... It's a little, I don't want to say formula, but a little problematic maybe from the standpoint that it's a back to the future scenario in which the event that winds up being so seminal to Picard's life is like Marty being called chicken. Uh, he picks a fight with a Nausicaan in a bar and gets stabbed. But that's who he was. And if he doesn't do that, then, well, his life does unfold very differently. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of a, oh, really, we're going to do that? But you're so invested that it doesn't really matter. Um, John Delancey is at his playful, mischievous best as Q in this episode and, uh, just couldn't ask for a, a better setup for, for Star Trek. This is, you know, this is where, again, the show fires on all cylinders and it just is amazing with what they're able to do. Now, as always, I like to mention a couple of other episodes. Um, so some honorable mentions from this season would include the other Q episode, True Q, in which a young woman suddenly discovers that she is not human, as she thought, but is a member of the continuum, that her parents um, uh, fled the continuum and had a child. Uh, in relative obscurity. And um, it's a very interesting side co side of the coin to, say, Charlie X uh, or one of the original series episodes where, you know, there's a being of immense power that all of a sudden discovers this. But whereas the original series, they tended to abuse it, this is a young woman coming into her own. And it's also a responsible cue. Uh, it's a side of cue that we don't normally get to see with him being for lack of a better word, nurturing. <laughs> and uh, so it's. I, I think it's a, a worthwhile look at things uh, in that regard. Also notable because um, the town in which uh, her parents settled down and were subsequently killed when a freak tornado jumped the weather control grid 
and smashed their house to tiny little pieces happened to be Topeka, Kansas. So my my stomping ground featured in Star Trek. It simply doesn't get any more spine-tingling than that. Another honorable mention uh, for me is Second Chances. Um, the, in this one, Riker returns to the site of a former mission, an eight-year-old mission, only to discover that uh, due to a transporter glitch, there's a lot of those this season, a second Will Riker was created and has lived, well, survived, on the surface of said planet for the last eight years alone. Now, what makes this one interesting in the annals of Star Trek and why I think it's worth a mention is that normally when you have a situation like this that would come up, it is, you know, there's a formula to Star Trek. There's problem X on planet Y needs to be solved in time frame Z. That's the formula. And when you deal specifically with a character, oh, we've got a, a transporter duplicate. Well, okay, at the end of the episode, we're going to reintegrate these patterns. They're going to go back together. Except they don't in this one. Thomas Riker becomes his own person and flies off to, you know, have his own set of adventures. And it's shocking. It is completely shocking and mind-blowing that Star Trek did an episode where they didn't reset, you know, at the end of the episode. They made a fairly major change and then left it in play. And the reason that I say that is because as much as I love Star Trek, it is fairly formula. X, Y, Z. That's the deal. And at the end, of the, it's, it's episodic. At the end, it kind of goes back to the status quo. And this one doesn't. And yet, we never really revisit Thomas Riker. That's the last we see him. And it, it just kind of feels like, well, why did we leave him alive at the end of the episode if we weren't ever going to come back? Is this something, is this a dropped plot thread? Is this something that never happens? It, it, it just kind of begins to bring up all kinds of other things that I think are like, hmm, well, wouldn't that have been interesting in that case? So for the annals of Star Trek history, I think Second Chances is a, a, a wonderful... Plus, it, I mean, he gives uh, Jonathan Frakes a chance to play, which is great. Uh, another honorable mention for me is Starship Mine, in which the Enterprise is undergoing um, a, a procedure to kind of clear it. In a, I believe it's a Baryon sweep, cleared of uh, foreign particles. Everybody is beamed off the ship because these things are toxic and treacherous and will kill you if you're there. Uh, and some thieves beam aboard last minute to steal fuel from the Enterprise and happen to encounter Picard, who came back for his saddle uh, because he was going to go riding while all of this was going on with maintenance. And therefore, Picard now has to play... Uh, it, it's basically Die Hard on a starship. It's Picard in the John McClane role trying to outwit terrorists. Um Ultimately, rather forgettable, other than for, you know, what a great concept that we, you know, we, we've seen Die Hard on a boat, we've seen Die Hard on a plane, we've seen Die Hard. How about Die Hard on a starship? And I get a chuckle out of that. Now, this season is also full of what I think of as some near misses. Um, these are episodes that aren't dogs by any stretch of the imagination, but ones that just don't quite get there. And I can think of... 
nothing other than right off the bat, Birthright, part one and two. Um, Birthright, Worf discovers that his father was not killed in the Romulan attack on, on Kittimer. Um, the one that we've, you know, the whole Worf story is kind of built around your father, the traitor. And he betrayed us to the Romulans. And then he was killed for his cowardice because of this. Well, then we find out all these years later that, no, it wasn't Worf uh, who, who was responsible, that it was actually uh, Duras and his family that were in, and they blamed Worf. Okay, so we get that resolved in the Civil War and all of that stuff, and now we find out that Worf's father is not even dead, that he's been taken prisoner and is living in isolation on a Romulan world. Okay, what a fantastic setup. Unfortunately, we never really go anywhere with it. We get to this planet and we discover that there are Klingons here and that they've been living integrated with Romulans uh, as part of this prison camp. And it's kind of a very quiet, low-key affair. But nothing happens. This this big two-part episode, nothing ever really happens. Nothing ever really gets resolved. And it just kind of feels a little hollow and empty. And I think it's unfortunate because it's such a, a brilliant premise that to, to not deliver on it um, seems a bit of a waste. Um, also on this list is, unfortunately, another Wharf episode, Rightful Error, um, in which Kalos... Emperor Kalos, first emperor, the, 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 you know, we hear all the stories of Kalos the Great. Kalos returns to lead the Klingon Empire. Well, it turns out he's a clone of the original Kalos. And it's kind of a ploy by a group of Klingons to try and solidify what they consider to be a fractured empire. It's another one of those really great concepts that unfortunately doesn't really wind up going anywhere in the overall lore of the Klingon Empire. We, we never really find out any more about what happened after Kalos staked his claim to the throne. And so I think there's a couple of stories out there that could have been told, and maybe would have if the show had gone for an eighth season, um, but uh, we just never get around to it. And finally is The Chase. Uh, the Chase has a brilliant premise about an archaeological dig that may finally explain why there are so many humanoid species in the galaxy. Uh, and Picard and the Cardassians and the Romulans. And there, there's a great race as they rush around trying to compile all the pieces of this uh, puzzle. And, it, uh, and then all of a sudden it ends fairly anticlimactically, and I've always felt that this was destined to be a two-parter to really pay, give us a payoff that I think we needed more time with it, and unfortunately, we never did get it. It just kind of, okay, that was the end of that. Aren't, aren't we happy that we all know more than we did? And I kind of think to myself, but but no, 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 we don't know any more than we did. <laughs> Maybe it was just me. I don't know. Um... I can't talk about season six without also mentioning one of the dogs, and that would be um, Man of the People. Uh, this is a this is an interesting one. Man of the People features uh, Counselor Troy as the receptacle 
of negative emotions that are being dumped into her by a psychic negotiator. And he is a piece of work, let me tell you. He, uh, he What he does is in order to keep his focus and his success with negotiatings, he kind of bottles up all of the negativity and... Uh, uh, anger and sexual repression and jealousy and anything that could be considered a negative emotion. And he performs a ritual which then links him to another individual. And then he dumps all of this into that person. Well, that person suddenly begins to act out on all these feelings. And it causes rapid aging and eventually death. And he doesn't care. That's what makes him quite the piece of work. Not only has he done this before... He's done it repeatedly, and he is not remorseful about it. In his mind, well, it's serving the greater good, because I'm obviously more important than you are. Now, when this happens to Troy, a couple of interesting things happen. And this is where the episode, in my mind, genuinely falls down. Is It's a wonderful performance piece for Marina Sirtis, because she gets to play with all of these emotions and suddenly turn Troy into something different. She gets to... Uh, be jealous. Her sexual appetite is off the chart where she tries to seduce Riker and anybody else who comes along. Unfortunately, it's all portrayed as negative. Everything that she goes through um, is, 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 is bad, including some of her sexual choices. And I think that that's a shame. I think that that's a, a mark against it because it suddenly falls into that trope of, oh, you like sex, you must be bad. And for Star Trek, in a uh, obviously in a, in a 24th century setting, you would think that they'd be beyond that. Now, obviously, the show was created, you know, in late 80s, early 90s. So it's being written from a present day, or what was a present day uh, standpoint, and simply projected into the future. So there's a lot of present day stuff that's working, just as the original Star Trek being, you know, made in the 60s reflects a lot of the attitudes and culture and things of the 60s. Star Trek The Next Generation is no exception. For all of their high-mindedness, they were trapped with some of the attitudes that were still present today. Uh, and I hope that as we get closer as a society to the things that Star Trek represents, that we will also get closer to ideals that Star Trek represents and that maybe we can put some of these, um, some, maybe we can put some of these tropes to bed that this does not equal evil. Um, it's rare that you have a TV show other than, you know, if unless you're doing, you know, Special Victims Unit uh, with Law and Order, it's rare for a show to really deal with rape. And emotionally, this very much was rape. And while the comeuppance of said individual also is kind of tropey because it falls unto, you know, revenge rape fantasy, uh, maybe is, is the, the, the term for, for that kind of thing. But it, it just... Overall, I don't feel like it's a very satisfying episode. I think there's a lot of stuff that could have been done here. I think there's a lot of opportunity that was squandered. 
to really do something with this episode. And maybe, you know, maybe they couldn't have. Maybe there's no way they could have turned this into a, a heavy drama, really dealing with the consequences of it. But uh, it certainly presented an interesting opportunity that I feel like they dropped the ball on. Um, it's regarded as one of the top, I think it's number six on the worst episodes of Star Trek of all time. Um, and I think it's a shame because, like I said, Marina Sirtis does an absolutely bang-up job uh, with what she's given. They just didn't quite know what to do with it. So there's that. Um, now, keep in mind that, obviously, these are simply my opinions, and uh, I'm just offering up a, if you're going to watch Star Trek but don't feel like you want to watch all of it, here's ones that you definitely should invest your time in because they are so worthwhile. But I also feel like this is a show that, realistically, you can't go wrong. You can watch all the episodes of Star Trek and not feel like, oh, my God, I wish I'd had that hour back. Um, if, if you enjoy it, go for it. Also a reminder to, uh, you know, check out our normal offerings over on Traveling the Vortex if you're a Doctor Who fan. That's the bread and butter. And uh, we continue with uh, our exploration of topics over there. And uh, also a shout-out for Patreon. Uh, don't forget, you can give back. And uh, I know that a lot of people are clamoring for giving back, especially now with times being what they are. But uh, if you get value, as Glenn says, out of what we do here, consider putting some value back into it. Your dollars are very, very welcome and very useful. Uh, they allow us to continue to do things. Uh, and main number one on that is server space. Um, putting together audio, it, it's, it's easy in a way because it's just me sitting here talking, but it's challenging in a way because, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff on the back end that it has to be housed and stored and server and blah, 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 and I don't pretend to understand all of it. Um, but I know it costs money because i got to pay the bills. <laughs> as, as the Traveling the Vortex treasurer, I am aware of the cost of these things. <laughs> so if you choose to... Uh, you know, support what we do. You have our thanks. We uh, we very much appreciate that. I think that'll wrap it up for this one. Only one more season of Next Gen to go, uh, and I uh, I hope you've been enjoying these as much as I enjoy bringing them to you. And I'll have my thoughts on season seven coming up in the not too distant future. Until next time, live long and prosper. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.